We said last week that the biblical ideology of love is vastly different from the secular worldview of love. Because in the world, they say that you can fall into love as if it's an accident, and you can climb out of love or fall out of love, I guess. Um, But we see in the Word of God that love really is a choice primarily. Does it come with emotions? Yes. But you still have to choose it even when the emotions aren't there. That's what real love is. And so when we talk about love last week, we talked about it in the context of worship and saying that worship truly is love being expressed. So if you weren't with us, now you're caught up, all right? Throughout the series, though, we want to take the same approach each week and practice what we preach. Um, When you think about the biblical examples of worship in the Bible, one of the first names that always comes to mind seems to be a man named King David. King David wrote a majority of the Psalms in Scripture. He, um, he was known as a man after God's own heart. There are some significant things about him that you may not think about, but I want to remind you about this morning. He was a shepherd, the Bible tells us. He was also a warrior. He was a commander. He was a very good friend. He was a king. The Bible says he was a poet and he was a musician. He was a man just like any other who was not perfect. I read this morning the story about a perfect, about a, not a perfect man, about a man in France who is not perfect. And I want to tell you a little bit about this man. Uh, He is suing the company Uber over his wife's discovery of rides that he took to go and see his lover. Everybody say, ooh. The man says he once requested an Uber driver from his wife's phone, and despite logging off, the application continued to send her notifications about his travels. And so his history was coming to her phone, and it aroused her suspicions. Uh, It's no surprise the couple has since divorced. But there's a lawsuit that this man is actually suing that company in the realm of $45, $48 million. He is suing Uber for telling on him. So if, I mean, you just, you listen to this quote. This is what his lawyer says to a news agency. My client was the victim of a bug in an application. The bug has caused him problems in his private life. Can I just tell you something this morning? It was not a bug in an electronic app that had caused problems in his private life, okay? All right. So when we think about this, though, we understand the world is filled with people who are not perfect. There are people in this room. In fact, every living soul in this room today is not a perfect soul. We talked recently, even last week, about the lineage of Jesus Christ and how he has a prostitute named. And he's got all these other, you know, crazy ragtag bunch of people listed in his lineage. He is the only perfect one. But back to David... Uh, He was a man who had faults and moral failings. The Bible tells us that he committed adultery with a woman whose name was Bathsheba. And then, in case you forgot, he callously plotted the death of her husband, whose name was Uriah. And that guy was one of his officers in his military. Something that many people miss in this Jerry Springer episode of King David's life, okay? Because it's pretty crazy and wild what happens. Um, something that people miss is that Bathsheba's father was one of David's 
elite warriors. Listen to me. We talk about Uriah being killed on the front lines of battle. We talk about David, you know, he's got his binoculars on. He's looking at Bathsheba. There's a reason why she was living so close to the palace. It's because her daddy was in the charge of the military. He was considered part of David's elite, we could call them Marines or special forces in those days. And her grandfather was an advisor and a counselor to King David. You can look it up. Their names are Eliab and Ahithophel. Okay, try to say that five times fast. But anyway, if you let that sink in for just a moment, you start to come to grips with how really Jerry Springer-ish the whole thing is. That David then, as continuing to lead the country, has an, has an officer who's her dad and also a, her grandfather who's in his court and who's advising him on principles of national security and everything else that they're dealing with. So this, the plot thickens a lot more than just thinking that David had to like, off her husband so he could marry her. And then we understand, and if you were in Sunday school at some point in your life, you may know this, but Bathsheba's first son or first child um, dies as a result of God's judgment. Later on in the story, King David's own son is attempting a coup of his father. Anybody remember his name? His name was Absalom. One of the co-conspirators with Absalom was Bathsheba's grandfather. Can you blame him? He's been David's, you know, one of David's right-hand inner circle guys all this time, and he thinks, this is my moment. I'll finally get justice and revenge. Think about that. When you think about Scripture, it's a lot more clear as you read more of it to understand it. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to go to two places in Scripture today. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and then the other place we'll go to in a few minutes is Psalm 51. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin with Bathsheba. In verse 27 of chapter 11, okay, so understand this. Look up at me for just a second. The Bible was not written chapter and verse, okay? We divided it like that, so it's easy for us to get to. Because back in the old days, they were like, no, not that scroll. Unroll the other one. You know, they had to, like, keep looking and keep looking, okay? So today's day and age, we have those divisions in the Scripture. And the reason why I say that is because they bleed into one another, so understand this, verse 27 of chapter 11, it says this about David. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And I love the hope that's in verse 1 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. So in these moments... The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 11 lays it out. He, I mean, he goes the distance to make sure that Uriah is killed. He has got blood on his hands even though he didn't hold the sword. He's the guy. And so Nathan comes to David to confront him in his sin. Listen to what it says and follow along in verse 7 of chapter 12. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. 
I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11 says this, thus the Lord, or thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Let me give you a little insight as to the first part that we didn't read. Nathan has a very creative approach that I believe the Holy Spirit of God gave to him. When he comes to David, he tells him a story, and David gets riled up because he says, Oh my goodness, that guy has got to serve his time. He's got to be punished for his sin. And we come into the story where Nathan says, You're the man. So then as we go through this confrontation in verse 13, it ends, it says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. I don't mean to make light of this, but this is exactly what happened. Nathan dropped the mic and left, okay? This is that moment where he's saying to them, this, he's saying to David, David, you're the guy. God has said he won't kill you. You're not going to die, but you're going to experience the consequence of your sin. The word of God is our standard for life in today's day and age. It always has been and always will be. In those days, David needed to hear the word of God from the man of God, and we do still as well. But the word of God is accessible to each and every one of us. If I was preaching this message somewhere around the world, there are places where I wouldn't be able to say that because they don't have the word of God in their language. But we do have the word of God, and it's our standard for living. So we have God's living word, and it's being used in these moments to David and in this moment to you in this room today for your correction, for your reproof, for your rebuke, for your encouragement. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that all of those who lived before, now their lives are for us a testimony of God's faithfulness, of what he's done, but also all of their failings and fallings are things that we can take a look at and say, God, help us not to go in that direction. So we have the living word of God today, and we should be people of the word of God. I've said it before, and it's been said before. We should be people who keep coming back to Jesus. When I was a teenager and I, was grown, I grew up in the church, my father was a pastor. I should have known better and should have never committed any sin, but I still did, and all of us have. The Bible tells us in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So 
at, at certain moments in my teenage years, I would struggle with something, whatever it might have been, just pick a sin. And then I would feel really bad about it. And I'd say, God, would you help me with it? That still happens today in adulthood, in spiritual mature people who still struggle with sin. It may be a reoccurrent thing and they've got to keep coming back to Christ. At some point though, we have to make sure that we are not just sinning and then asking for forgiveness, but that we're actually doing something that David does, which is repenting. I have a confession to make to you today, which is not a sin to, to confess, but a confession to you to make in, as it regards the word of God. I feel as though sometimes I haven't rightly, the Bible says, divided the word of truth for you. And today I'm going to make sure I do that really well. The way that I say that is this. Oftentimes we talk about repentance as being a change of behavior going from one place to the next. But the Greek word metanoia, and there's a Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament, actually says that God repented. If you don't believe me, you can go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. I'm not going to read much scripture in there. But it says that it literally that God in his heart repented as a result of the harm that he had chosen or the harm that he was planning to do towards his children. I said Genesis 6. That's not correct. I'm sorry. It's Exodus chapter 32. It says, and the Lord, verse 14, the Lord repented of the harm which he thought to do his people. So if you're remembering scripture in those moments, they had been at the mountain, at the base of the mountain, and Moses went up to meet with God, and Aaron was down there, and he said, "Woo! I don't know what happened. I just melted this gold, and a giant cow came out, and we're worshiping. Isn't this just wonderful? And so, like, you're really, Aaron, seriously? But God got really angry, and the Bible says that God repented. So then I'm caught off guard a little bit because I think to myself, Repentance can't just merely be a change of behavior. Because what we end up preaching and we end up believing is that God is all about behavior modification, and that isn't true. God is all about heart modification, which in due season will become fleshed out in our everyday life and demonstrated because our behavior will mirror what's in our heart. So it's pretty crazy when you think about that because conviction, which is the Holy Spirit kind of settling in on you this morning, you may feel that about certain aspects of your life. You may feel that about words you said to your wife. You may feel that about things that you've done in your past. You need to be like David and I need to be like David and we need to confess, yes, it's me, I have sinned, and then we need to repent. Repentance literally means to change your mind. I tell my kids this, and I hope that everyone starts to get this. I'll preach it till the day I die. You, just because you think a thought, doesn't mean you have to keep the thought. Okay? Just because it comes into your head that, how dare her? I can't believe she didn't invite me to that party. Would you believe? Wait a second. I might be thinking wrong about that scenario. I might not have all the details. I might just be moving in my emotions. And my emotions are not based in truth. They're based in emotion. I just went to a marriage conference and 
figured this out for myself. So I'm preaching to you what I just learned. This is good, all right? I love my wife, and I love her regardless of what she does to me, for me, seemingly against me. And she has to love me the same. We've chosen to do that. So the same thing is true of God, that he wants us by the spirit of God and his help to actually change our mind. You say, pastor, this sounds like, uh, what's his name? Tony Robbins, you know, with a self-help, like if you just do this, I'm telling you, you have the ability to change the way you think. You can keep holding a grudge. You can keep assuming everything in the world is against you. You can keep assuming the worst about people, or you can ask God for his help so that he'll give you the right attitude, the right approach. We need his help. Do you understand that today? I hope you understand that, that we need his help. So that's why we say keep coming back to Jesus. We do not believe, practically speaking, that once saved, always saved. Because the Bible says that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. That I'm a work in progress. Somebody say amen. You're a work in progress. But that is not a cop-out to continue sinning. If you find yourself, now this is helpful for you. I hope it's helpful for you today. If you find yourself struggling with the same exact pattern of behavior, you have to analyze your heart to see what the origin of that is. If you consistently have a pattern of lying, you have to Figure out, why is it that you depend on that? Is it pride? Is it this? Is it that? If you have a consistent pattern of something else, you've got to see your heart, your true heart. And the Bible says that the word of God is like a mirror, that when we look at it, we realize, oh, I really do need God. I need him and you need him. Go with me to Psalm 51. We'll have these verses on the screen for you in just a second. I want to take time to read this entire psalm. And you say, but pastor, you're talking about repentance. You're talking about David had adultery and murdered somebody. What does this have to do with worshiping God? I'm going to tell you, it has everything to do with worshiping God. Because David could own up to his sin, and he could still come to God. And in verse 10, which we'll read in a minute, he says these beautiful words, which kind of hearken me back to the old days, to a, a song we used to sing around the altars. And that song is, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. This psalm is written, the Bible tells us at the, the, the caption, you could say, or the caveat before it, says it was written by David after his encounter with Nathan because of his sin. So with that context in mind, listen to what it says, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verse 4 says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak 
and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Just listen to these beautiful words that he can speak out to the Lord as, he, as he's found himself in the place of needing God and repenting of his sin, changing his attitude, his approach. Verse 13, it says this. He then gets really bold. He says, God, if you do all of these things, don't cast your, your presence away from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. He says this in verse 13, then I will teach your transgressors or teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, Open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So he goes from the moment of confession, the moment of admittance of guilt, the moment of, of being confronted with his sin, and he turns it and he says, God, if you could help me out of this, I promise I will help others out of this. I want to be a blessing to those around me. And then he says this, if you would just take a sacrifice, I would go and kill a thousand animals and bring their blood and their meat to the altar. But that's not what you're interested in. Can I tell you, church, that's the gospel truth today still. He's not interested in your right behavior that has no heart behind it. He's interested in your right heart that leads to right behavior. So that's where the challenge lies. For a long time, we in the church have been trying to talk and trying to help people out of the problems that they have when we talk about sin modification or behavior modification. I love, I love that comedian who did that skit on that uh, TV show, um, Bob Newhart. And he's sitting in the, the office and he's pretending to be a counselor. And the lady comes in and she confesses all of her fears. She says, okay, doctor, um, I don't know how this whole thing works, but I'm going to tell you I'm scared of this, I'm scared of this, I'm scared of this, I'm scared of this. I can't go outside. I'm scared that somebody will get me. I'm scared the walls will close in on me. And she just unburdens herself. And he says, listen, I don't know if you know how this works, but I, I'm going to charge you X amount of dollars. 
I'm going to give you a few statements or a few words, and I'm going to help you. If you listen to me, I will help you. I will change your life. Right now, you can change your life. Really? Well, what is it? what What do I need? Okay, do I need a pen? Do I need a notebook? And he looks at her, and he says, stop it. And she's sitting there like, no, there's got to be 10 steps to this. I've got to pay a lot more money and like listen to tapes about this. And he says, no, 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 you didn't get it. Just these two words. You can write them down if you need them. Stop it. And then he kind of encourages her a little bit more and says, stop it right now. (laughs) We've been doing that in the church. We've been telling people, stop it. We've been confronting people who are living in ungodly relationships or we've been talking to people about righteous living in some area in the entertainment choice they have or whatever else it may be. And we have done a bad job as believers, not just the guy up here, but all of us in trying to help people modify their behavior rather than trusting God and asking him for his help to modify their heart. So if you've got a sin problem or a habit that keeps on haunting you or something you can't let go of, I'm telling you today, according to the word of God, you don't have a behavior issue that needs modifying. You have a heart that is sick and in need of Christ. Because once you accept that and once you lean to him, then we will allow the Holy Spirit to do the work he wants to inside of us. So he says in verse 10, 11, and 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Do you know that David was convinced in this moment God had all authority and all power to do that? He knew that in that moment he could cast him out of his presence forever. He knew that God could remove the Holy Spirit from him. And David thought, no, please don't do that. I'm sorry, please restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. If you've ever thought that God's up there with a hammer waiting to hit you with it, he has the ability to. But this right here says that he doesn't have a vindictive spirit. He has a generous spirit. And to those who ask, he gives. This is what's awesome. So it all leads me to the place of understanding that repentance is necessary. That change of mind that demonstrates or is demonstrated by a change of action and behavior later. We've had it backwards for too long. Listen to what Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says. And I'm going to close with this. Now, after John was put in prison, talking about John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God or the good news of the kingdom of God. In verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus' words were this. The time is now or fulfilled that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Change your mind and believe in the gospel. Believe the words of the good news. So I say all that today to say that repentance is a necessary part of worship. You may feel stupid saying to God, God, I'm sorry, I'm back here again with the same issue in my marriage, in my family, in my behavior, in my whatever. But God doesn't look at it like that. God is looking at it like you are a work in progress and he's willing, ready, and able to help you if you'll allow him to help you with 
your heart. But sometimes I feel like if I could say this of my own self, there are times that I'm, I might be happy not letting him help me with my heart. The Bible says that sin is good or fun for a season. You have some pleasure in it, but the end of it brings death. And so when we consider our time in worship, and worship team, if you'll join me again, when we consider our time in worship, we've got to understand that God cleanses those things that are confessed and that salvation comes to those who confess and believe. So don't pull any punches with God. As the lights come down and the worship team comes on and we're going to sing some songs, I want us to right now in these moments take an opportunity to confess your sin. This is not a Catholic church. I don't have anything against them specifically in relation to this, but they have an attitude of confession. You've seen it on movies. You may have seen it yourself um, in some way, shape, or form, but they make a practice of confession. They want themselves to be at that place where they acknowledge what's wrong with them. Would you stand with me today? So I want to challenge you today to confess the reality of your sin. Don't duck around it. Don't beat around the bush. You tell Jesus today, tell God the Father today that you need his salvation, that you need his help, that your heart is sick, and that he's the only doctor who can fix it. What I want for you today is to confess your sin in worship. That doesn't mean you shout out loud something about an affair or something that's a, a grossly negligible sin. But I want today in this house for each one of us to walk out of here with the same freedom David had after having confessed his sins and knowing in his heart of hearts that God was able to help him with his heart, then we can walk out. And then secondarily, not just confess your sins right now, but tomorrow, when you have a bad thought about your coworker, stop and confess it immediately before the Lord and say, God, help me. My heart is so sick. I had that bad thought about my, my friend or that person. Help me right now. And as we quickly confess, we'll quickly see the work of the Holy Spirit literally transform our lives. So would you do that today as the worship team leads us in worship? And I'll close in prayer in a few minutes.